everyone, and welcome to this very special symposium from Signum University. This is a rather unusual symposium. It's not one of our usual straight-up literary or linguistics topics. So today we are going to discuss mental health in the academy, how issues of mental health and mental illness affect students and faculty and sort of academic structure, what we can do about it, those sorts of things. So we welcome your questions throughout this time. There is a questions box where you can type your questions to us and we will try to integrate those as the uh, event proceeds. Shortly, I will introduce you to our panelists, but first I just want to invite you to check out what's going on right now at Signum. Most exciting thing at the moment is our annual fall fundraiser. So Sparrow has just sent you a link. We really ask if you are willing to maybe consider going there and giving a donation so that Signum can continue to offer free programming like this and that the graduate school part of the university can continue to grow um, and offer its excellent programming. All right. Um, and you can also check out our events page to see what other exciting things are going on during the fall fundraiser and other times. There are exciting regional gatherings going on um, all over the country and a couple abroad as well. So do check those out. I would like to introduce our panelists today. And I think each might say a little something about why they're here today, sort of their interest in this subject and so forth. And then we will get into our discussion. So I'll start with uh, Sparrow Alden, who is a preceptor and student advisor here at Signum University. She bravely manages our online learning platform, Google Classroom and the Community Hearth. And she has also represented the Signum staff on the board. Now, Sparrow, you have some other credentials and interests too, maybe more directly related to today's topic. I do as well. In addition to having been a graduate student and now an advisor for graduate students and seeing the, the stressors and the change that come over all of us as we cope with really intense academics. In the other part of my life, I am a pastor and I uh, have a special ministry. We're near Dartmouth College and my congregation. And so I have a special ministry with, of course, the high school youth in my congregation and on Dartmouth campus. So to, to witness and walk with some of these people who are just finding the pressure more than they expected and need help over the hurdles. Thank you for inviting me, this is great. Thanks for being here, Sparrow. And Carl Pearson has been on our faculty in the past at Signum mm -hmm. University. He has a doctorate in English from the University of British Columbia and a master's degree in English from the University of Regina. His area of scholarly interest is pre-modern literature with reference to the ways it intersects with theological, philosophical, and sapiential traditions, wisdom literature. Carl, welcome. Yes, th thank you. Um, yeah, so, so I, um, I have those degrees and I'm currently teaching at a, um, a small college um, in, in the wilderness of Ontario, Our Lady Seat of Wisdom College. And uh, my credentials for being here are, well, I mean, I've, um, I have the doctorate, I've, I've done the academic thing, but, um, but since childhood I have had um, obsessive compulsive disorder, which um, 
later in my life uh, sort of blossomed into depression as well. So, um, so yeah, so I have the, the fact of having experienced all this and having had to learn to work with it um, alongside uh, getting degrees and getting a job. So, uh, so yes, I, I, um, I can't ignore these matters because they are a part of my life. So, so that's why I'm here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And we look forward to maybe hearing more of your story as we go on. Um, and Karen Pearson, Carl's sister, is a registered nurse, registered psychiatric nurse. She has been that for the last 10 years. She works in several areas in the psychiatric department at the Regina General Hospital in Saskatchewan. She works with both inpatients and outpatients requiring treatment for mental illnesses. She also works in the electroconvulsive therapy department and the injection clinic. She also loves to paint and draw and read and travel. And thank you very much for being here with us today, Karen. You're welcome. Yeah, so I, I think that kind of sums up why I'm here. I have been working there for it's almost 10 years. Um, and because I'm Carl's sister, um, we have a family history of mental illness. So basically, when you combine that um, with my experience as a psychiatric nurse, I've seen all sorts of um, different types of mental illnesses, people coming from different backgrounds, lots and lots of people who are uh, students, university students, uh, um, and some even in high school um, that do struggle with uh, mental illnesses of various kinds. So. Um, so yeah, hopefully I can contribute. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really glad that we could have someone from the mental health care profession join us. And I just do want to clarify that. So we have one mental health professional and three English professors <laughs> with uh, varying degrees of uh, experience and exposure to this topic. So, um, well, so we want to talk about what problems people with mental health difficulties might face in the academy, uh, how severe this problem might be, and so forth. And the experience of mental illness is increasingly more common among students and faculty at institutes of higher education. I do have some statistics I can read out to sort of give the context, and then anyone can share stories, concerns, thoughts, there's a 2014 report by UC Berkeley that found that from 43 to 46% of graduate students, specifically in the biosciences, were depressed. More generally speaking, about 47% of PhD students reached the threshold considered depressed. And master's students, while better off than PhD students, still score as depressed about 37% of the time which is 6% higher than the general population. Now, I tried to find specific statistics about faculty members, and I think it's quite telling that I already couldn't find specific stats about faculty, right? So that tells you something right there already that this area hasn't been studied quite as much. But it does seem that especially contingent faculty have higher rates of reported mental health issues than the general population. And that there are certain populations who might be more at risk than others. Uh, people who are in an ethnic minority, more elderly faculty, women seem to score a little bit higher, and especially, again, all of those who are in a non-tenure track or a contingent situation. But this is not at all exclusive. There are other populations as well. So. Any of the three of you have thoughts on 
do those statistics sound ridiculous? You know, why might this be the case? Let's just let's just start brainstorming here. Sparrow, I think you're muted on your end. There, thank you so much. The dogs were making a great noise, so there we go. <laughs> Uh, just to start at the physical level, and I wonder, Karen, if you might be able to, with your expertise, tell me if my field observations make sense. But it seems to me that when someone's in such a focused, goal-centered environment as academia, that we might forget body-mind wholeness, that going for a hike and calling your family and having a leisurely long bath, there might not even be a bathtub if you're at a bricks and mortar school, that the things that keep us robust and balanced are neglected and that sometimes folks are using like caffeine to stay awake to, to meet that goal, the, the goal that they love. And then maybe using alcohol so when it's time to sleep instead of responding to their body's natural needs. That's just something I've observed. Karen, how does that sound to you? Yeah. No, I 100% agree with that. Um, it's true. Most of the coping techniques that the psychiatrists, um, mental health professionals will recommend are things that require you to step back and take time for yourself. And it's true that when you're studying um, any course really there's very very little time for that um and uh, what happens is the person ends up going into that sort of fight or flight mode and they sort of stay in that mode and there's not really um there's not necessarily an end to that insight so i think that that can get you know, worked up um to the point um where you're just sustaining that fight and flight mode for too long. So it can decrease your immune system. Um, it obviously isn't good for depression um, because although a certain amount of stress is healthy, if you have a sustained amount of stress for long periods of time, that can definitely affect the mental health. And like you say, um, going for a long walk, taking a bath, making a phone call, um, there's just not time for that. And, um, and then, what happens is the thing that you have so much passion about becomes a chore as opposed to something that you're that you're actually passionate about. So it's a definite rut that people get into. So I agree with that. Does does it sound right? And I'm you know, opening to everyone. It seems to me that if you've got a familial or a personal history vulnerability to some kind of mental illness that all of us in that stressful forgetting to take care of ourselves situation are put at risk, but you, you've got more than a double risk if you've got that diathesis, the, the vulnerability to uh, say depression in a family or bipolar disorder or even uh, a dissociative disorder from past stressors. Am I, does that sound right? No, that's exactly right. Um, if someone is predisposed to a mental illness, um, then any amount of stress can exacerbate that. So whereas a person might function relatively normally from day to day, if they're put in that sort of crisis situation or stress mode or sustained fight or flight response, then definitely it can make 
um, bring out these mental health concerns. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think that you're out of line there. Um, and I mean, some um, forms of depression can be very, very much related to a situation. So someone might have a depression related to the situation. And if the situation is actually taken away, then they can actually go back to not meeting that criteria anymore. So there's, there's different types. Some people will have it regardless throughout their life but some people if that specific situation is taken away then then the symptoms start to disappear too so yeah, yeah. um carl i want to hear from you on this question and then i'm going to bring in a, a comment that we got from an attendee carl what do you think about the statistics and the bleak picture that they paint well i i particularly noticed the um the statistics about um the statistics you mentioned about graduate students um, and also the ones you didn't have on faculty and full-time um, academics. Um, with regard to the graduate students, um, I really think um, we need to get to a place where we're thinking about dealing with mental health in terms of what degrees one is, what degrees one is doing, um, because um, I think I think in certain places we're getting good at um, caring for undergrads. Um, in, in certain places there's things in place, but I've encountered situations where, um, you know, they have a plan in place for undergrads, but graduate students, there's no particular plan. Um, and I, I think, um, well, this is particularly frightening because I think in, in graduate school, um, in the MA, but, but perhaps even more in the PhD, um, I mean, we're basically in some ways pitting ourselves against ourselves like we're um you know going out to research something absolutely new uh that that uh, no one else has, has done and so we're spending a lot of time alone um which sort of leaves us alone with ourselves for for quite a while so um so when there's a predisposition to to things like depression um that sort of uh, aloneness and fighting against yourself sometimes can become despair um right. And so I, I think um, we need to talk about, um, you know, um, how do we deal with this unique situation we're putting someone in where they're going and sort of um, fighting with themselves all day. <laughs> um, and the, the other thing I wanted to say about, about faculty, I mean, um, part, part of the problem is, as you mentioned, um, just the, the job market, <laughs> being on the academic job market um, puts people in, in extremely, um, stressful, competitive, uh, and really punishing situations. Uh, so you're very rarely going, well, I mean, yeah, you're competing with 250 other people who have, have got their, their degrees and who are all very smart. And, you know, you're sort of just throwing something out there that you're likely going to get a form letter that says, no, we don't want to, or, you know, we appreciate your interest, but we don't want to hire you. And I mean, getting that kind of feedback over and over again on, um, on one's work is, um, you know, setting someone up to um, to to experience um, very various kinds of mental illness, um, particularly if one is is predisposed that way. So, um, yeah. So, so, so that's I think all I have to say about those those statistics. Uh, right. Actually, I do have one other thing. Um, I'm not surprised by the fact that there's difficulty finding information on uh, full-time academics because this is still kind of a 
uh, still kind of a difficult thing to talk about personally, but also um, a lot of academics are afraid to talk about it because they're afraid of um, you know what it implies for their jobs. So yeah, yep. Yep. and we'll get into that shortly. Yeah. I have lots of stories and details about that. And um, Sharon Hoff has a comment that she sent in about that. She said, it can be surmised that faculty were once students and achieving a position in academic circles is not a magic solution to depression. You're exactly right, Sharon. Um, and so here's something that I think I observed as I was reading through articles and looking at things today. It seems that the pressure becomes more intense in each phase of becoming an academic and at the same time, the available resources go down. So you said, Carl, I think you're right that resources for undergraduates have greatly, greatly improved. Statistics and personal observation at my own home institution, Baylor University, suggests that's true. Um, yeah, I realize I forgot to introduce myself. Serena Higgins, currently getting a PhD at Baylor University. And I have statistics available from 2012 from Baylor, and then I recently heard a presentation, but unfortunately don't have the data. But for instance, from 2005 to 2011, the number of students using the counseling services went from 600 to almost 1,200. Wow. So it almost doubled. And then I believe the number has perhaps more than doubled again since 2012. And according to this 2012 study, 14% of college students have been treated for depression before entering college, but then 27% of 18 to 24 year olds have a diagnosable mental illness. And then as we heard a minute ago, 47% of PhD students. So what happens is that the pressure on one gets greater and greater and greater. So the pressure right now, you know, in a PhD program is incredible. Like the workload is intense, but that's often true, but also, as you mentioned, the competitiveness factor and the high stakes on small things is, is pretty intense. And then if you go into the job market phase, that's even more intense. And then from what I hear, the tenure track, the first five years uh, before gaining tenure can be even more pressure on an even heavier workload. So yeah, Sharon, you're right in that if 47% of PhD students have a mental health problem, then theoretically 47% of faculty do as well. I'm not sure it lines up though because so few of us get full-time jobs, mm. right? The job market is such an enormous part of that as well. So people who don't get the resources and aren't able to make it through their PhD program or aren't able to make it through the job process, you know, maybe a lot of people might be weeded out who have these issues um, and haven't had the resources. But I do also want to suggest a slightly more positive interpretation of these statistics too for a minute, which is more and more resources are becoming available, starting with the undergrads and working their way up. And I at least have observed a decrease of stigma, which means more and more people are being reported into the system, into the statistics. So more people are seeking help, more help is available for the people who need it, and more people are willing to go and seek it. So I don't think that the human race has suddenly become more mentally unstable than it's ever been. I think we have more terminology, more understanding, and more resources. What do we think of that interpretation? Yeah, Sarah, I think- Karen, go ahead. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I definitely think that people are becoming more vocal about it. And we still have a long way to go in terms of reducing stigma. But um, at the same time, I think you bring up a good point about saying that now that people maybe are feeling more uh, comfortable to seek out help, then yes, the statistics would definitely look different. And now that people are maybe recognizing the symptoms, maybe otherwise they would just see it as a sign of weakness. Now they might look and say, hey, like I'm actually suffering from depression. They um, would be more likely to be in that category of people who are um, in the statistics of having depression. So I think that that's a huge, huge possibility. Um, so, and yes, I do feel that that's a more positive take on it because Within those statistics are hopefully people that are getting help somehow. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. May I tell you, Serena, about an amazing presentation that I went to in August? Yes, please. Speaking of the stigma, mm -hmm. um, Justice Brennan, who is a retired New Hampshire State Supreme Court justice, had a long career in law and, and Capstone was this long career on the bench, became a Supreme Court justice. When he retired, he went into um, charitable work and and gave all kinds of time. Great, great guy. And then two years ago, he said, I am done with the stigma. And he has spent the last two years going to every single high school he can that will open the door to him to talk about his son's mental illness. Wow. Yeah. And he has been so brave about the story. The family was nearly torn apart. And he, this this dignified senior statesman, mm -hmm. has said, mental illness is in my family. And I have not met a family that it hasn't touched. And he's saying, the stigma hurts people, let's talk. According to him, every time he talks to a bunch of teens and says, it is okay to ask for help. Here are the people, look at the people on stage with me. They can help you. Right. Every time he's talked to them, there have been young people just flocking up to him for hugs. And the principals are all, you're not supposed to hug them. And he says, as long as these kids w need a hug so badly they'll come to a stranger, I will hug them. Yeah. And the inspiration to say, there is a stigma. There's no reason for it. Let's crack it open mm -hmm. was inspiring and wonderful. I just wanted everyone to know this great guy is out there doing this. That's great. Well, let's start from there on the issue of stigma and circle through what it is, why it is, how bad is it, um, is it real, and then come back around again to is it getting any better? Uh, because as I prepared for this today and read story after story, it, um, it was very discouraging. There does seem to be a sense that people who are, we'll, we'll start with faculty and maybe work our way down this time. So faculty who are on the tenure track generally do not disclose a mental health concern until after they've been granted tenure. And there's one author, um, Karen Pryall, who has written a, a series of articles on this for Inside Higher Ed. I recommend all of them. But the end, her recommendation was, to my non-tenured colleagues with psychiatric disabilities, don't disclose not yet. 
let your counterparts with tenure handle this campaign for a while. So that's what she said after going through her own story. And she quoted people saying things like, we are the intellectual elites in our respective fields, or at least that's what the brochures say, and thus our brains cannot possibly have problems. Or they hired you for your mind, one person told me. Why would you volunteer that there's something wrong with it? She's quick to point out, though, that she doesn't actually believe that a psychiatric disability necessarily means there's something wrong with your mind, but that's often the way it's taken. So you started out, Sparrow, by saying when we're academics, when we're scholars, like we often just live in our head and we forget to treat the body, which we need to do to stay healthy. But I mean, they hired our head, right? They really don't care what shape our body is in if we're academics. So if we disclose that there's something wrong with our head, um, we might not be hired on the tenure track. So Carl, do you want to speak to this issue first? And then we have some other bits we can throw in there. Yeah, I, I, I do. And it is, um, I, I mean, it's, um, it's true there still is uh, the stigma in, in the academic world, I would say. And there is um, certainly the, the, the feeling of, of stigma on the part of those who, who have mental illnesses. So there is, is a, deep, a deep reluctance to, to talk about it, precisely because of what, what you say. Um, because there's this idea that, that academics are kind of uh, walking brains on sticks and, you know, this is all we are. And if, um, you know, if something is wrong with the brain, then why are we here? Um, I mean, I would suggest that this is um, a problem that actually goes back to, um, to sort of an enlightenment model of the academy. Uh, this, this idea that, um, you know, uh, we, all that really matters is what goes on inside our heads, defining our heads in a very particular way. I mean, we know a lot of things go on inside our heads, but um, but narrowing it to this very sort of um, um, reason-oriented focus and treating the person as kind of a thinking machine. And, and I think we still kind of tend to do that and tend not to ask questions about that. Um, whereas uh, with, with Sparrow, I'd say, um, you know, there are older sort of more holistic models of, what, what a person is um, and what it means to be part part of an academy um, that I think maybe if, if we did some research on, we, we could could draw from those models to, to think about um, what is personhood within the academy and could we think of it as something broader than uh, just brains on sticks. Mm. Arrow, did you want to come in on that? I Whenever Carl speaks, I am reminded of one of those, you know, of the clerk of Oxenford, who is not just an academician, but a cleric and a, a, a lover of books who would just passionately in love with, with the study, but also some have the religious zeal which may still be pointed at the study, but it gives dimension to it, not just the, the brain, but the spirit. And yeah. just hearing your voice makes me think of the spiritual side of academia. And what you have to say reminds me that it has not always been just about getting grants and just about bringing income to the university. Sometimes, you know, you got to go out in your garden and cross pollinate the peas, right? And maybe do science the 
the 400 year old old fashioned way, which gets your hands on and your sleeves rolled up and the good earth in your, in your nose, maybe the scent of the good earth in your nose, excuse me. Um, that's, that's what you made me think of. And wouldn't that be a beautiful model for maybe starting with, maybe even starting with a small school to say, I, and I think there's some undergraduate institutions like this saying, we want you to be getting your hands dirty, having experiences, having a semester at sea. So I think it's not lost. But as you say, Serena, the faculty are in a goldfish bowl where there's less care available than right. for undergrads. I think we're, we're aware that these 18 to 22 year olds have these great needs, but the 30 somethings, not so much. I'm going to disappear very briefly to get my my electricity back. I need. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good luck. But it is true that, as one article I read puts it, people will often delay seeking medical help for a mental health problem because they're afraid of how their peers might react if they find out they have such a diagnosis. And Luke, who is attending here today, says, I have had tenure track colleagues tell me, don't give interviewers a reason to discriminate against you. Now, of course, they're not legally allowed to discriminate and probably on an individual basis, people are very caring and so forth. But as you mentioned, Carl, the academic job market is so incredibly cutthroat. If there are 250 people interviewing for the one position, then disclosing a mental health problem might not be advantageous. And Diane shares the very true and sobering fact that sometimes the illness can shape our abilities, either temporarily or permanently. This is, of course, true for strictly physical health problems um, rather than mental health problems. I mean, I have a condition that sometimes results in pretty severe pain. And when I get the pain, I'm unable to think clearly. Right, I just get this brain fog. So that is not specifically a mental health issue, but on those days, how am I supposed to write a clear argument, you know, thinking through the pain? Um, so yes, when I'm on the job market, I'll have to think long and hard and take advice about when do I disclose um, a medical condition in the process. Karen, do you have any thoughts here for us legally, medically, you know, any of those aspects that come to mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that there's that big um, um, message out there that you shouldn't be disclosing a mental illness to someone who could potentially hire you. And while I'd like to say, and this is like just my own take on it, what I'd like to say is that everyone should be able to be completely upfront about uh, what they're suffering with and what they're struggling with. However, in the case of mental health, we are dealing with people who whether they like to or not some of them really do um, discriminate um, they're not always objective and because the stigma isn't completely gone there are people out there who I believe would base a decision on on your disclosure that you have a mental illness so I think it's kind of a matter of taking each person on an individual basis and um, sort of giving, just feeling them out. Um, and it's not a bad thing to give out less information initially and then maybe later on, once you 
form a bit of a rapport with the person to disclose a bit more. But I do think that a person needs to be cautious about that, not um, because that's ideal, but because um, it's true that in the setting where there's very, very few spots available, um, um, people with depression are still considered a minority, even though they're not really a minority. There's so many people that still um, aren't out with their depression. People don't actually know that they have it. So um, I think it is a very individual basis. And it's very, very sad that um, in many cases, um, people can be uh, discriminated against or denied a certain position because of their disclosure. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's really sad. So yeah. And if you look at it from the universities or the institution's point of view, it's a hirer's market. And again, if I have 250 qualified candidates to choose from, I'm probably going to choose the one that I believe is going to be the most productive and you know, bring in the most research and grants and students and so forth to my institution. So you can understand how someone might be a little bit nervous um, if someone discloses something. Um, well, does anyone want to say more about faculty on, and stigma? And then I want to move it down to grad students, PhD students, MA students, and so forth. Carl? Oh, sorry, repeat the question again? Um, anything else you want to say about faculty and stigma before we switch to grad students? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the difficulties is really, in certain ways, the only way you can fight stigma is in some ways through disclosure. So the way you can fight stigma is if you know someone who has a mental illness that is different than the way you thought. Um, you know, so, so in certain ways, fighting stigma in the academy requires certain academics to say, okay, I have a mental illness and I'm an academic, you know, this is what we need to talk about. But, um, but on the other hand, it's, it's a dangerous thing to, to reveal. So it's, um, um, Hard, hard to discern um, what yeah. what to do there because um, you are taking a risk in, in disclosing, but you are also fi fighting for something you believe in, um, which I guess is what has kind of led me to um, perhaps dangerously be open about it. But um, yeah. 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 Uh, Matthew gave a comment exactly on that right now. If there are legal protections to prevent people from discriminating against you to the point of not being allowed to ask you about it, then you shouldn't provide the information that they would not be allowed to ask voluntarily. Um, so that seems absolutely true from a legal and practical point of view. We're going to move very soon into the solutions section, the what can we do, the support and help. Um, but yes, that's a, that's a very good point, Matthew, and we balance that against what you just said, Carl, which is sharing. Um, someone's also mentioning that the issue of stigma is a problem in the technical world, perhaps a little more so than other fields. Technical folks are also hired for their brains. And there's stereotype of the engineer is someone who is logical and reason oriented to disclose that your brain is broken is a bit risky. Um, oh, Luke is bringing up an excellent point that I saw in the research many times, Luke. When you combine the occurrence of poor mental health with imposturism, like the imposter syndrome, this leads to further isolated students because they do not see similar problems in the professionals in the field. Perfect transition, Luke, into talking about students and stigma. And then I want to move us into the solutions section. Um, what risks are there? What sort of things have you seen in um, among grad students? 
do you think there's more support and less stigma? There might even be, as speaking generally, a generational difference. Although at Signum, of course, we have so many non-traditional students. Sparrow, go ahead. I was going to say, but then you said generational, and I agree absolutely. Um, I see a lot of medical school students, and so I would posit there's even a difference in disciplines. In med school, there's a long tradition that could even be called hazing um, between your, your degree granting years and your residency years, and it's unpleasant. And on the other hand, at the business school, people are getting married and getting dogs and it, which is a different kind of pressure, but they're having a more holistic life and they're actively networking and chumming up with each other instead of kind of a cutthroat way of being. I have no idea about, um, painting with a broad brush. I do know that at my local university with a graduate program, the College of Arts and Sciences that has good peer support networking because these are cognitive neuroscientists and psychologists and um, um, uh, great folks in the bio department who know and say, wait a minute, let's have in our 23 minutes a month, let's get together for pizza. Right, yep. And the research suggests that such peer groups are one of the most effective ways mm -hmm. yep, to combat that sense of isolation and the continuing cycle of debilitating effects. Yeah, if any of our listeners here today want to share you know, a story or an observation about yourself or someone else, you know, the situation of a grad student who is doing intense academic work while dealing with a mental health issue, we'd love to hear those. Comments from Karen or Carl about grad students and this situation? I think, I mean, one of the things you have to wrestle with uh, when you're in this situation as a graduate student is, do I tell my advisor? Um, and I am, um, I guess I could say in my MA, I was fairly transparent about about what was going on. And actually that, that worked quite well for my MA because my supervisor was sympathetic. Um, for my PhD, I was less straightforward and I kind of wish I uh, had been more open, openly communicative about that because it, well, it explains various things that, that went wrong <laughs> during my PhD. I mean, I, I got the PhD, but but there are various times, you know, that um, um, things were rocky in terms of mental health. And, and I wished I could have said to my supervisor, um, you know, this is what's actually happening. <laughs> um, and, and, and I didn't, um, it, was, it was my decision. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this is a problem on my supervisor's part, but it, it was my decision to, to not say that, and and I kind of wish I had. Um, so I mean, this is this is something that everybody has to wrestle with, um, and it, in some cases, it will depend on who you are and who your supervisor is. I mean, as as do a lot of things when you're doing a PhD because you're working sort of closely and intensely with one person. Um, so this is um, uh, 
Well, this is one thing to to think about, and um, I don't know if I have an easy solution for it. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought I'd throw that out there as one of the things one faces in doing yeah. post um, upper level. And I think that it partly depends on university culture and departmental culture, as well as your personality and that of your advisor. Um, I know that where I am, I'm blessed that the culture is extremely supportive. I mean, my department brought in one of the uh, counselors to talk about how we take care of our mental health as grad students. And he shared the statistics, but then he also gave very, very practical advice and he basically begged us to come and get support. And then just recently, just this semester, the dean of the graduate school has put through a short-term leave policy that covers both physical and mental health mm. issues. And wow. just working out the details of how, you know, how that applies to graduate instructors and so forth. But, you know, I'm blessed with being in a very supportive community. And I hope that that continues to grow. Um, and of course, when you have alternative educational formats, like here at Signum, it can be easier to accommodate individual students' needs. Karen, any thoughts on that question as we then start to move into solutions and support? Um, yeah, no, I agree with everything you guys said. Like, I think it does vary from department to department. And there are some departments that are um, a lot more equipped to deal with struggles with mental illness. Um, but as Carl said, there's always that uh, like question about do you disclose it don't you disclose it and I do think that a lot of people um, are in the mindset that they're using their mental illness as a crutch and that if they bring that up they're just making excuses um, even though their mental illness is very legitimate um, there's that perception that um, their advisor might think that you're just making excuses so um, but I do um, I'm very glad to hear that um, that uh, Soren, in your department is very supportive and I think that it's very encouraging to have departments like that um, and my hope is that those departments will become more and more and be able to influence the departments that are less aware and I think that as slowly people become more knowledgeable and stronger um, then I think that the strong the people who feel in a safer position um, if they feel comfortable, sometimes they think that they can influence um, for the good people who are in a maybe more vulnerable position um, where they don't feel as confident and comfortable um, in, their, in their department. So, yeah. 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 And um, I have come across lots of helpful resources and more and more you know, top academics are publicly disclosing and that's really helpful. So I'm actually gonna share the bibliography right now with everybody, um, if I can figure out how to do so. Um, this is the bibliography of sources that I use to put this together and a lot of which are really helpful for either um, discovering how to combat stigma or just practical resources and so forth. So let's move into the really practical part now, the solutions, the what can people do? What can institutions do? What cultural changes do we wanna see? And then just what are like simple practical steps that people can do, um, that teachers can do to care for our students, that faculty can do to care for each other, that any peers and any level of education and academia 
can do to care for each other. Um, and I would love to invite the audience here to just send in their suggestions too. Just what are things that we can do to care for each other individually and institutionally? So who wants to start? I'm still trying to figure out how to share this handout, so go for it. If you want to text it to me and I can put it up, if you if it stymies you, I'll be happy to. Thank um, you. One of the practical tips is compared to, you know, systemic and policy changes. I'm so excited to hear about what Baylor is doing. One of the practical things I have learned, and I'm going to do that, is if you want to help someone, don't pussyfoot. Even if you're at the level of worried that your advisee or your colleague or your student is suicidal, say the word. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Mm -hmm. In as normal a tone of voice as possible so that this person knows you're not going to freak. Mm -hmm. Even if they're not thinking about it, they hear how non-anxious you are. And it actually takes practicing. Are you worried that you might hurt yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? Hard words to say because our our lizard brain fights to survive and we try not to even think it, but the person who's already there, and you're not gonna introduce an idea they've never heard right. of. Right, That's research says that. If they yeah. haven't thought of it, you're not going to make them think of it. You're not gonna make them think of it. But the fact that you can ask it as a matter of fact question like, yeah, people sometimes have this concern, we can talk about it, I can help you find a resource, uh, shall we get lunch? It's that non-anxious acceptance that can help someone you're talking to say, yeah, I'm thinking about that, and then step for help. That is the, the second wonderful thing that I learned at that great symposium. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yep, and in a brick and mortar institution, I know that the majority of my colleagues and I have at one time or another walked a student to the counseling center. So making a student aware of resources. So yeah, asking the question. And if they say, yes, I have thought of this, um, I have thought of, I have thoughts of harming myself or someone else, physically walk them to the resources. Uh, before we close today, I wanna hear suggestions for everyone about what an online university can do because I can't walk my student to the counseling center. Um, but what else can we do? Someone suggests here, it's been my experience as a grad student dealing with a mental health issue that one of the most effective things you can do is to find and follow a self-care regimen, medication, eating well, sleep, exercise, meditation, stress management, stigma management, etc. No one will keep this perfectly, but even if followed imperfectly, it provides a healthy foundation to build on. Yeah, that is very, very well written and very clear. Thank you for sharing that. And then this person asks a follow-up question, how can faculty, staff, students help support each other with this? Um, yeah, Karen, any professional suggestions there? Oh, well, okay, firstly, I agree that um, having a regimen is super, super important. And it can be a very, very simple regimen, whether it is I'm going to get up, I'm going to eat three meals today. I'm going to study at this coffee shop at this time. It can be a structure, any sort of structure that even though you don't have time for something like a long walk or whatever, it provides that structure to get you through the day because 
statistically, um, when people don't have structure in their day and don't have something to plan towards, then they will suffer. So I think um, the importance of taking the medication, making sure that you're following up with your psychiatrist, um, and just being aware of how you're feeling in the midst of what you're doing is a good way. Um, and then, sorry, what was the second uh, question again? Well, could I be annoying and push back on that one first for just a minute? Yeah. Because I think the problem there, Karen, is that when one is in a major depressive bout, one cannot do those things, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's easy for me today to say, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do my yoga, I'm going to eat my salad. Um, but someone who's in a major depressive bout simply, you know, sometimes cannot get out of bed, cannot brush their teeth. Um, and other, other mental health issues, they tell lies, but they take over the whole consciousness that, that there's no other self there to combat the lying self. Yeah, so, yeah, it's definitely, yeah. yeah, it's definitely hard when you're in that stage, um, to, it, when you're in a stage where your mind isn't thinking clearly because of the depression, um, you can't think clearly to be like, okay, I need to have this structure. Um, so it is, it can be a really, really big rut. Um, and I think that gets to that point, um, like there's a lot of issues to look at. I mean, are the medications working? Like, are they seeing a counselor? Um, do they see a psychiatrist? Um, because clearly if it's the point of someone not being able to physically get out of bed in the morning, then that implies that they're, they're, they're affected in so many ways. Nutrition, exercise, um, likely uh, their academics as well. Um, so it, it can get into a rut though, because the tendency is to isolate and not reach out for help. Yeah. Um, so, and on that level, it's hard to really give a concrete answer. Um, but I do think that as Sparrow said, um, for the ones who are a little bit more mentally able out there, feeling a little bit stronger, it's good to be aware of the symptoms of other people struggling. So this person that might not get out of bed in the morning, someone might see them bringing in um, the, whatever documents they need to bring in, and that might have been their one outing that day, but someone else might recognize in them that they're really like disheveled, they don't look like they've showered, like they look like a mess. And that's, I think, where um, those people, they really have lost any voice to speak for themselves. So so it's, it's good to be aware of um, those kind of symptoms, especially when it's not consistent with how you know that they usually are. If you've known them if, when they're better and then you're seeing this um, a, a change in their appearance or presentation um, can indicate that the person is struggling. And so I think that, um, you know, if um, if a person recognizes that, it's really good to sort of ask them about it. Um, it it's one of those questions that doesn't necessarily have an answer. That's um, but really I would, good though, Karen, and that, that goes to what our previous questioner was saying, how can we support each other? And I think getting getting training is very, very helpful. So faculty need training for how to recognize those things that you're saying, changes in behavior, right? Um, maybe de departmental trainings, whole grad school trainings, 
for what to look for and how to support each other be really useful. Um, Carl, thoughts on yeah. what we can do to either change the culture or support each other? Yeah, just um, to, to jump in there on, on the question of, of, you know, mental illness, like as you're saying, you know, it's good to have these things to hang on to, but what if you can't get out of bed? Um, a couple of things I'd, I'd interject there is the importance of um, having a handful of friends or family that you're relatively transparent with about your depression. Because at that point, when you're having trouble getting out of bed, you probably are not going to be able to autonomously go to the doctor and get checked out. You're going to say to yourself, uh, it's no use anyway, <laughs> I'm going to stay in bed. Um, and at that point, you need friends or family who will. Uh, in extreme cases, even physically take you to the doctor <laughs> and say, um, this is what you need to do. So I, I would emphasize um, the importance of, um, you know, I mean, one doesn't have to, to tell everybody everything, but, um, you know, having a handful of people you trust to sort of give you feedback uh, when, when you are going through these things. So, so that's one thing I would mention. Um, the other thing is, struggling with the difficulty of what you can and can't do. I mean, it's, um, there's degrees of these things. So there's, there's sometimes when, when I can do a lot and other times when, you know, I'm just sort of utterly depressed and, and collapsed. And I, I think about it in terms of, um, I guess using, using the good times to plan for what I'm going to do when things are bad. Um, so it's sort of like, um, you know, um, when, when I get to, uh, if, if we think of like um, the things I'm doing is climbing a ladder at the good times, you know, I can get up to the higher rungs and, and whatnot. Um, in the bad times, you know, I may just have trouble getting to the ladder or getting on, on the first rung. But I, I, I think to myself, what is the, the first thing I can do? And, and that, um, you know, it, it will vary depending on how how deep the depression is. But I, I think, well, I, I can do something. What is something I, I can do? And, you know, some days uh, sort of um, convincing myself to do that one thing will build into being able to do other things. Other times, you know, it, you only do a few things in, in a day. Um, but having that sort of plan there, you know, what, um, what structure am I gonna hang on to when um, things are really bad? I think can be helpful. And, and the important thing about that is not to to plan more than you can do, is, is to have a reasonable, like, this is all I can reasonably, reasonably expect myself to do when I'm depressed, um, you know, but that is, is something. So um, have sort of a, a doable plan that you come up with when, in the times that you're well, so, so you can, um, you know, when you need to hang on to something um, and everything goes crazy, then then you have something something solid. So I mean, that's that's something I've sort of developed personally to to work with myself as you know I'm um, because I can't just magic away these mental illnesses, but I ask myself like how can I sort of cooperate with them to <laughs> to do things? Yeah. Yeah, uh, we got a comment agreeing with you that supportive peer groups and mentorships are two very important systems for students. So both with the peer to peer and the mentor to student, those are both very, very important. Um, and someone else mentions the mental health first aid movement, which is hmm. worth looking at along these lines. Um, one person does say here, though, that they feel guilty asking for help. And specifically with within academia, I know we have to wrap up soon, um, but specifically within academia, 
we always have deadlines and we always have more than one deadline. So I would say that what you've just described is impossible, Carl, except that your testimony that it isn't. I mean, you, you successfully achieved the very enormous goal of a PhD, even when there were days that you knew yourself, you could just do the one thing, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't know how many deadlines I'm overdoing right now. <laughs> you know, I, I am, I mean, um, so that is the drawback is it, you have to negotiate that with people. Um, and that's tricky, mm -hmm. uh, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is where I think institutional change comes in also, right? That when there are sort of institutional or cultural changes, um, they can make that more possible for people to have systems to reach out to. Am I frozen here, folks? Uh, no. I seem to have lost everybody else. But we can see, yeah. Hang on, attempting to reconnect. No, oh, you are fine. Oh, I think you are muted, Serena. While Serena is reconnecting, Karen, I want to know if there is one more thing that you were looking forward to telling us before our time runs out. What is the one most important thing? That, oh was on that is a very, very broad question. Oh, oh, okay. I, do think, I do think that um, there is help available. And that's what people, um, you know, it's hard to see that sometimes. And it's hard, um, it can be very daunting when we discuss all the barriers and all the difficulties involved in getting help um, for um, your mental illness. I think um, the thing to remember is that um, there are people out there, there are, um, you know, there are types of help out there, um, and you're not alone in struggling with a mental illness. Um, and maybe that's more of a broad statement, um, but um, it's quite, um, I find that it's quite common for one person with mental illness to sort of recognize their own. Um, and so sometimes um, it's just a matter of sort of um, identifying other people around you who might be struggling the same way. Um, and then slowly by doing that, it might just make you feel a little bit stronger. Um, and then the other thing I think that Carl brought up is actually really important in terms of making that, what they call it is a relapse prevention plan. So it's kind of like, mm -hmm. an, sort of like an advanced directive. Oh, I like the sound yeah. of that. Okay, so it's Planning. a plan you make ahead of time. It's a plan you make ahead of time for someone else to implement in the event that you can't. Um, so you would identify, um, so like a person might just have a simple piece of paper, they could write down all the phone numbers for the crisis lines, for the helplines, and every line would be different based on location. Um, they could um, specify to their family member, to their friend, to their loved one, um, if I start displaying the following symptoms, if I start, um, you know, if you recognize these behaviors in me, um, you have permission to take me to emergency, um, even if I'm kicking and screaming. Sometimes that makes the family members comfortable enough 
to sorry i can't hear you i think oh no i'm i'm just talking oh, to myself oh, okay that's okay yeah so sometimes <laughs> yeah sometimes the family members um or the loved ones and stuff it also empowers them too because then they have um that validation that okay even though this person is like wanting to punch me in the face right now <laughs> they're gonna thank me later um so it's kind of like a plan um and 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 if a person does get to that point where they're able to do a bit more planning where they're able to get out of bed and do a few things if they do anything it's good to have that network of people and to you know um even if it's one other person one person um that can check in with them and tell them okay i noticed this about you you give them permission to do that then they don't feel guilty about checking in with you and you can say like ask me about anything ask me if i want to harm myself ask me like you like so you can really 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 make it specific if you just even have one other person to be that person to check in with you so yeah all right that is a fabulous idea i love it i realize we're running a little bit over time i want to ask carl when you have had your awful days and can only do one thing if you were going to speak to future sparrow when i'm having my awful day what is the one thing you want me to get out of bed and do that's a good question but i think it probably starts with taking care of yourself physically so if you haven't eaten anything eat something drink uh, water eat real food move yes Just keep the system going yeah because my my brain wants to leap right into the academic work and you know just <laughs> just let, let everything go and but i mean when i'm in that place um you know i i just um my body is lacking the energy and um i need to be reminded to take care of that before i can start doing the the thinking um i mean that day i may not get any thinking done i may just get taken okay. care of the body done um you may just eat and have water good yeah so so um yeah so i mean that's that's sort of what i would say to um to do first um you know if you have sort of um so, something else that can be helpful there is if you have like a um you know um a routine in terms of prayer or if you do yoga or something or, or something like that um you know where you're um something that allows you to step back i mean for other people it, it might be exercise um for, for me it's very hard to get myself to exercise but but it, it is a proven way of um you know fighting these things um so so anything like that that um you know maybe lets you step out of your mind and and uh, get your body doing something um, is, is probably what I would start with. Fantastic. Serena, welcome back. Before I give you back the floor, I wanted to directly address the person who said, I feel guilty asking for help. And to everyone else who's listening who has thought that. And I think that's everyone who is listening. If I were at a myth moot and you ran into me crying into my scrambled eggs i know you you would come over and sit and say sparrow what's up is this 
horrible pain or are the eggs just wrong? You would help me. Help will always be given. If it was me, you would help. So please, guilt is not a good use of your energy. I know it's there, I know it's real, but everyone here talking, everyone else listening to this wants to be of service to the world. This is why we're on fire about learning. This is why we're on fire about our colleagues. Help will always be given. Okay, Serena, I'm gonna cry for a second. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> well, that's actually perfect, Sparrow, because I was going to say to all of our attendees, we're over time, so if you want to say goodbye, that would be great. But I think I some of us may want to share personal stories too. So why don't we say we're at the official end of the symposium. <laughs> um, we've been through the statistics, we've been through some solutions. I have other like, you know, systemic cultural institutional solutions I've come across um, that we can post somewhere, whatever. Um, but if anybody here on the panel would like to share a more personal story, um, Carl, you mentioned bringing faith into it. We could frame our discussions from our personal points of view. That that would be great. So I'll say goodbye in case anyone's leaving. And I don't know if any of you have to run to collect children or get to class or anything. That's exactly what I'm typing. Thank you all. It is such a privilege to meet you, Karen, and Thanks. to sit at the table with all of you. Good night after running get the teenager. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sparrow. Yeah. Um, so did any Pearsons have more they wanted to say that we haven't been able to get to? <laughs> it, it's such an extensive topic and there's so many, um, so many ways that um, the conversation could go. So it's, it's hard because I could talk for hours and hours about it. So yeah. I think questions have been pretty focused and have been pretty, have been touching the really main issues. So. So I think that, that we're doing pretty good. <laughs> Great. Carl, anything else you wanted to share that you didn't think we touched on? I think maybe uh, the, the final thing, um, you know, for, for those who suffer from these things, um, one of my, my frustrations is um, sort of um, peppy awareness posters, let's say. Um, <laughs> And uh, th these are frustrating to me because a lot of times, um, I mean, um, we want to uh, sort of culturally and medically treat um, treat mental illness like um, like other medical issues. So we want to go go to a doctor and uh, take a pill, and it'll all be better, um, which is true sometimes. For for some some people, uh, it, it is simply a matter of you know, balancing something medically in their system or something like that. But very often it's it's the case that, um, you know, um, treatment for depression is, um, is complicated and um, often not um, fully completed. Um, so, so, I mean, one of the, the good comparisons that, that I've heard it compared to is uh, something like um, having diabetes. Uh, where where you get diagnosed with something, but um, it's not just a matter of you know popping a pill and there there you're all better. It's a matter you have to 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 measure your blood sugar for the rest of your life. You have to uh, 
you know, change your diet in some ways for, for this. Um, and, and that, at least I find, in my experience, a more, um, a more realistic analogy. Um, so, so often, you know, awareness campaigns, and, and I realize we do it for a particular reason. They're sort of like, you know, come if you talk to us, you'll get better. That, that's sort of, you know, the, the hopeful, and, and one understands why we do that. It's because um, one wants to, to hold out hope and, and you know, one wants to um, uh, not cause people to despair. Um, but, but my experience is more often the case is, is, is you open up and you get help and, and some things are fixed and some things are not. Um, so, it, so it is, I guess, thinking about uh, mental illness as something that is usually chronic rather than and something that is just sort of um, a single time experience. I mean, there are some people for whom that is the case. But I, I think um, just from my experience, um, a deeper understanding of the chronic nature of, of um, mental illness um, would, would be helpful. And, um, and an understanding that, you know, one day I might be um, dealing with things in a very sane way and the next day I might not. <laughs> Yeah. Or as one of our listeners here puts it, for some of us, it is for life and no solution. Mm. It's, it's a managing and, and functioning rather than curing, mm. right? Yeah, and, and we need to, I mean, because that, that sounds, that often sounds scary to people. And I mean, it is scary because it's, you know, we're saying we're up against something that we can't always get rid of. Um, but the, the fact that it's scary means we don't often talk about it. And that sort of leaves out the people who, we do experience it as a reality they experience throughout their life. So, so we need to somehow make, I mean, it is, it is really a scary thing because, um, you know, it's, it's the fact that we can't control everything. Um, but we need to talk about that too. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that all. Like, um, it, I believe should be, uh, seen as in many cases, a chronic illness and it's, odd that we often don't compare it with other chronic illnesses that might affect us physically. People tend to separate the psychiatric and the physical as if they're two separate uh, parts of a body, but in actuality they're very, very connected. And when you look at um, someone with a chronic illness, um, say, say they have fibromyalgia and it, it's something that is with them for the rest of their life, often the treatment is checking with their doctor, but also a lot of support groups, a lot of um, um, programs designed to help them cope through something than rather uh, finish something or rather um, get over something. So the programs are very designed um, and focused on um, navigating your way through it um, with no end in sight necessarily. However, it makes you stronger as you navigate your way through it and you find supports with other people who have fibromyalgia. And I think the same can be said for depression. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or as our listener here says, you try to assimilate it into your life. Um, another question here, and probably specifically for you, Carl, does your academic work ever help and or do you ever write your illness into your academic work? So are those two things ever integrated for you? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I, I would say, um, I'd say overall, 
Yes, the, this kinds of subjects I study often have to um, do with um, literary and theological ways of dealing with suffering. Um, you know, which which is kind of um, you know a, a direct result of um, of you know ha having to to live with this. So so I do sort of choose my topics um, around that interest, and um, I, I I do try to. Um, in, in some of my more creative writing, to to um, to to bring the two together, it's 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 incredibly difficult because they're they're really two different modes of writing. The the academic mode, you're you're sort of using using evidence to prove facts, and the creative mode, you are you know sort of um, more re reflecting on on your emotions and, and the, the the place of of suffering in in one's world. Um, but I, I try to to blend the two, um, maybe because I am kind of searching for that uh, that pre enlightenment understanding of the self. Um, you know, we we um, after the enlightenment and after romanticism, we've kind of cordoned these things off. We have the intellect on one side and the sort of creative mode on the other side. And and so I mean, in in what I consider the best of my writing, I'm I'm looking. For, for a wholeness that um, that you know was lost and that um, that perhaps I can find. So it it, um, it is fair to say that it does influence my work a lot and and finds its way into my work. Um, I'm pretty sure when um, th there was one point when I was seeing a psychiatrist and and um, I told him what I was doing my dissertation on and and I'm pretty sure that he thought um, you know your dissertation is just a big neurosis you know. <laughs> Uh, because it, um, you know, it, it, it had to do so much with the kinds of things, um, yeah. you know, I was going through with with depression and whatnot. Um, so, so yeah, there there is a close connection. I, um, I mean, um, you wouldn't necessarily always see it if you didn't know me, but if you know me, um, you know, you it comes out. I thought you were going to say he'd said the opposite that you're obviously writing your dissertation as therapy. That it's, you know, that you're dealing. Well, he was very silent. That's how I interpreted his silence. Um, you know, but um, okay, I see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I want to I want to give a plug um, for literature on the other end too, though, because you work on pre-modern literature, and that idea of holism of the whole person is there. But I see some modernists striving to reclaim cool. that. Um, and I work on people who were deeply immersed in the occult revival from 1890 to 1945 in the British Isles. And I think one of the reasons that the occult suddenly became so popular again was this desire for holism and sort Ooh. of institutionalized religion, largely affected by the Enlightenment and um, by some some particular aspects of modernity and a rationalist approach and an almost an almost Gnostic separation of the spirit and the body. I think people were looking for a more holistic spirituality in these alternative Ooh. roots. And they were trying to reunite the body and the mind through ritual, so Ooh. through embodied practices. And then, of course, the authors that we tend to love the most here at Signum were also looking at a holistic way of using imagination as a route to follow to reunite the whole person. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of healing to be found in the literature that we love and study. Yeah. Well, and on that note, what do you think? Shall we wrap up? 
I think that's probably a good place. Um, okay. Yeah. Any final questions from any of our audience? All right. Um, this talk will eventually be posted on YouTube, and I will try to find somewhere to post the bibliography since I wasn't able to send that out and maybe some other thoughts as well. I think I think it'd be great if we had a discussion forum or some kind of a, a support venue or something. So maybe I'll brainstorm that with our digital campus people. All right. Well, thank you again, Karen. Thank you, Carl. Carl, it's good to see you again. Maybe we can have another chat one of these days. Yeah, that would be good. And thank you for, for chairing. You've, you've done an excellent job. Of yeah, thanks. I'll continue yeah. when my internet went out. Thank you to our attendees. And do uh, share the recording with your friends when it comes out if you think it was helpful. Okay, goodbye, all. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.